When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. So somehow here in 2023, in the space of a few weeks, we have had now and then a new song of sorts by the Beatles, plus a music video, and a brand new album, Hackney Diamonds, from the Rolling Stones. These two improbable events leave us with a lot to talk about. So to dig in, I have Andy Martosio and Andy Green. It felt like this would be the last time in the history of civilization there will be in the space of a few weeks, a new Beatles and a new Stones song. That is it. World, that is it. That is the end of this era. It should have ended a long time ago since the full Beatles lineup hasn't been around for quite a long time. But somehow here in the far future of 2023, only now are we hitting the end of an era when this is possible somehow. Yeah, but I think it needs to be said that the Stone stuff is a fully legit Stones record, fully legit Stone songs. This is Beatles that has a big asterisk next to it, I would argue. All right. Well, before you're going to go into sides, let's just agree that it's a very happy and rare time, as Brian said. Like, it's something to celebrate and be psyched about. Even like the kids on TikTok are excited about it. It's crazy. It's beyond rare. It's like I said, it's this is it. This is the end of it all. And this is a fairly energetic last gasp. We'll talk about the Stones album, which is, like you said, a, a real Stones album, which is in its own way as eerie as what the Beatles, the quote unquote Beatles did. Now and then, the Beatles song has an interesting history and it's tied into the Beatles reunion, the Three Doles reunion in 1994. And it's really the third in a trio of songs that have major asterisks on them, which is Free as a bird. Real love. And now and then. I was always vaguely aware of this. Were you two aware that they had started? Yes, I knew there was a third song that they worked on very briefly that George didn't like, where the sound quality was worse than the two others, because there was three Beatles anthology albums, so the thought was to do a song for each of them as a real selling point. But they just gave up when they when they started Now and Then. Yeah, and growing up to the anthologies, like I, you know, the CDs and the car as like a child, like I knew what those songs were, but at five years old, I had no idea there was a third one on the way. Or that was, they were trying to have on the way, at least. You should have done your homework at five yeah, years clearly. old and, and done, yeah. The anthology records, it's important to note how incredibly strongly they were marketed back in 94. The anthology special was this huge event back when there still was network TV was still a unifying force. And it was on TV, on ABC, I think. And, and it was everywhere. And I think a lot of people of very young Gen, Gen Xers and older millennials, some of them got those anthology CDs before they had some of the actual Beatles albums. So they learned those fucked up versions yeah. first, which is a real thing that happened. Yeah, it was the peak of the CD era. 
and the peak of the box set era and everything. So there was so much money to be made by this stuff. And it was the first big Beatles project in such a long time. And the documentary that they'd been talking for 20 years at that point or ever about, about doing a documentary they wanted to call The Long and Winding Road. So there was so much build up to this damn thing. And the CDs, of course, were a bunch of outtakes and alternate takes, and you don't really hear people talking about them as much these days. I also, I feel like you've got to hide your love away. I didn't know that they were, like, I hadn't heard the studio version for so many years because I thought that the actual version was that, where they joke in the studio about breaking glass. Broken at last, broken at last, Paul's broken at last, at last, at last, he's broke today. And they're like giggling. And that's what I thought the song was. So it really had an impression on a lot of people, especially younger millennials, I think, who didn't even know. I think that's very real. And I think it was a product in stores that people got for like Christmas presents, even though it might have been better to be like, here's Rubber Soul and Revolver first <laughs> yeah. instead of these thrown out versions of the same yeah. songs. And the CDs at the time of the Beatles core catalog, they're all from the 80s with very lousy sound. There was these 87 versions of the CDs out until the 2000s. It's it was madness. Part. And what bothered me about the anthology as a purist was there were outfakes on the anthologies in which they would combine different takes into one new outtake, which is just ahistorical, and I hate that shit. Did that bother you in 1994? Yes, it did. I read about it in 94. I was 13. I'm like, that is bullshit. I don't want a fused together Frankenstein take. I want the actual outtake. Now, I think personally, I think Free as a Bird, especially, and Real Love are, for what they are, pretty good songs. I never minded the sort of fuzzy quality of John's vocals because the one thing we know about John's vocals through his entire career is that he was always anxious to disguise them in some way. It's not like here's someone who was always presented in incredibly high fidelity sound suddenly reduced to something tinny. He loved that. So it was kind of appropriate. So that aspect of it bothered me very little. I think one thing is you notice is the hand of Jeff Lynne is very strong on those songs. It sounds very Wilbury's ELO. Like the, it's the Jeff Lynne thing. His signature is very strong. Free as a Bird sounds like an ELO light to me easily. It's very Jeff Lynne. You can hear it on there. Yeah, I think I felt the same way. Those songs, to me, they're very cool. They're more fleshed out than now and then as far as what John contributed in some ways. But it's like Jeff Lynne is the fifth Beatle on that stuff. And to me, it detracts in a big way from those songs. I'm sure what Jeff would say is, listen, I got my whole thing from the Beatles in the first place. So it's not like I was imposing something wildly different. It's not like he was someone whose main influence was King Crimson and imposing that on the Beatles. But yeah. Well, that's very true. But he had his own distinct thing. And you could hear it either if it's on a George Harrison record or a record by Roy Orbison or whoever you hear or Tom Petty, you hear his hand so strong on what he does and you hear it here too now i'm not accusing the beatles of spin or dishonesty i will say when i heard that the original reports that george harrison didn't like this song now and then i personally don't remember hearing much about song quality my impression at the time was he just didn't think the song was very good that was my impression because it's half-baked this is just john at a piano in his house in 1977 there's that's like beyond a demo it's just a rough home recording and With the I tv see, in the background yeah and so you could see why george when you hear freeze a bird you're like that's a whole fleshed out thing that we can work with this now and then feels like the beginning of a sketch of a song and particularly the tape they had i noticed her recently that they'd have the first gen tape back then they had a copy of a copy back then and with the technology of 1994 i'm sure it sounded like complete shit 
the quote, even in the New Yorker profile from not long ago, it says that George Harrison had called the song fucking rubbish, not necessarily the recording. So the funny thing is, this doesn't have to be a question. We now know that there are hours and hours of video of them recording this song from the anthology sets because they filmed the, this Three Beatles reunion so that we, it's not going to be a question. It, someday we'll know and there's, there's no doubt footage of George expressing his opinion. And it'd be funny if they end up adding like CGI, be like, of course I love the song, but the recording is fucking rubbish. It's, it's going to be like that, but we'll find out. I do think there might be some revisionist history happening here. But I think George, I think he was wrong. I think it's a very pretty song. The other thing is, in the demo, there's this whole other part that John sings. I realize I know why they had to cut it out, because it does sound a little disjointed, but (laughs) I think it's gorgeous and it's crazy that it just wasn't included or incorporated somehow. Yeah, it's a pre-chorus that they just totally chopped out. (laughs) It's like, we don't need that anymore. I was really shocked to hear that that was cut out. Yeah, I don't want to lose you or abuse you, right? It's that part. Yeah. Yeah. There's something very funny about Paul all these decades later being like, rubbish, John, like we're losing that part. (laughs) And then, you know, just snipping it out. And what's clear is John's singing about Yoko here. This was originally some sort of thing they were thinking about called the Battle of the Johnny Yoko, some sort of play or musical that this was written for. And but when Paul and him are singing together, it becomes in your mind they're singing about each other. It is so in keeping with the narrative of the Beatles, where we know that after a certain point, Paul was the one who took over John's leadership of the band. John was the original leader. Paul ended up taking it over as John got distracted with whatever was going on with him and lost some of his creative steam. And Paul was just picking up steam. And then it's a cliche by now, but it's true that Paul was the one, you know, get in the studio, let's go, let's do another album. And here he is doing it past the grave with both George and John. But he's like basically saying to the ghosts of George and John, what's wrong with you? Why, why are we not in the studio? Let's go. I love when he says, I, I know what John would have said if I would have asked him. He would have been like, yeah, this is great. I love this. It's like so confident. Right. As we know, John, always the font of, of enthusiasm for doing anything with Paul and always positive. But on the flip side, it's part of the John-Paul partnership that John would bring in a song and Paul would be like, I think that's great, but here's a way to make it even better. And to the very end, that they were working on each other's songs and fine-tuning them. And even if the ratio was like 95-5, there's still that 5% that would be Paul that would be distinct and would be very helpful. One of the cool things about Free as a Bird, Paul wrote this bridge, right? Whatever happened mm-hmm. to the life we... And it's very poignant because the lyrics sort of address the situation. It makes it more of a real John Paul collaboration. In this one, he didn't actually write anything. Instead, he added a bit where a tribute to George, despite George having been at the original sessions, where Paul plays his version of a George Slide solo, which is an interesting... I think a problem they faced is that George only spent a few hours working on this song and he just plays guitar on the verses. So they needed some sort of guitar part. So I think it was smart of Paul to play like George. Right. I just wish he'd written a bridge or something and really actually dug in there and written one more thing, quote unquote, with John. It's interesting because when we heard this was coming out, I actually assumed it was going to be for an expanded reissue of the anthology movie. Because there's rumors that's happening, and it seems like it's been tacitly confirmed that it is still going to happen, but not yet. 
Instead, it came out, it's like they were anxious to get it out, <laughs> maybe to compete with the Stones, I don't know. Uh, but they were anxious to get it out and put it with, with the Beatles Red and Blue, where it actually makes less sense. Yeah, I think part of it is the technology was finally there to do this, to strip out the vocals from the piano. That's something they couldn't do until very recently. And I think they went at some selling point on the blue and red records because those are just basically Spotify playlists on vinyl. There needs to be some additional thing to market those. First of all, one thing that's very cool about the red and blue, I've heard the Love Me Do remix, but Giles used the same technology, the stem, they call it stem separation. And it's gotten a little confused because... Peter Jackson's company, obviously Peter Jackson, the director of the Lord of the Rings movies and also of the incredible Get Back documentary recently, also his company has developed what seems to be the best version of this sound separation, stem separation technology. And what it allows you to do is if you have a recording where either they never did break up some of the tracks into separate tracks, or you don't have the original recording, you can take a finished recording and if there's vocals and piano and a TV sound, you can use AI, use machine learning to pull these things apart. And that's what he did here. And of course, when Paul casually used the word AI to describe this process, the world went insane. I, I think they really thought that they were making a synthetic John Lennon. Because people get confused about AI and they thought, oh my God, this is like a fake Lennon song that a computer made. This is complete <laughs> bullshit. And it wasn't the case at all. And what happens on these old recordings also is they play live and there's bleed through to all the tracks. So it's impossible to separate stuff until recently. It's really amazing they can do it now. Yeah, sorry. Well, what I was getting to is on the Red and Blue albums, they use that same technology. Giles has been doing this. He did it a bit on the Revolver uh, reissue. Sometimes they would have just four tracks. So yes, there were separate tracks, but one track might have both the vocals and guitar, something like that. And so that meant in remixing it, you were limited. You couldn't push up the vocals and guitar separately, you had to move them together. So what someone like Giles does is use this technology to separate the vocals and guitar, and then you can make a more robust and sort of advanced mix. And what they're now, what he's now able to do as the technology gets better and better is he's gone back to stuff that was really limited in a number of tracks, the beginning albums. And so things like Love Me Do, he's totally remixed. And the Love Me Do remix, I don't know if you listen to it, is it makes me wonder about these because it, there's something a little eerie about hearing something that old made to sound more modern. It's a little weird to me. Love, love me do. You know I love you. I'll always... Yeah, yeah, you know that there's some songs that are of a certain era and they sound that way to modernize them to that degree is a bit weird. But he has talked about going back yet again to Sgt. Pepper, which he only did a few years ago and doing it again because the technology didn't exist back then. Yeah, there's a whole other discussion about, and I, I really like his Beatles remixes. There's something a little disturbing on principle to me. It doesn't seem to bother, like I know Rob Sheffield doesn't bother at all and he seems confused why I'd even think about it, but there's something a little weird about the way that these new mixes are going to essentially, in many people's minds, erase the old mixes. Because, you know, you can find them, but they're not going to be recommended on Spotify and whatnot. So you're going to hear these new versions and it's going to overwhelm your memories of what they actually sounded like. And that's a little weird to me. It does have a little bit of a, a Greedo shooting first revisionist quality to me. I, yeah, but I don't think that they're going to make it quite as hard to hear the original Sgt. Pepper as it is to see the OG Star Wars before it's, it was It's true, but with. they don't even have to make it hard because when that pops up, 
you're still going to have to seek it out. And most people are never going to. Yeah, These true. mixes are dominant. When you search, it just comes up. Yeah, if you're like a scholar or whatever, it's very easy to find it. But for most people, that's what's going to come up. And it, it does. But you're right. At least they're not erasing and making it impossible to find the original versions, which is essentially what Lucas has done. But it's still, it does, something about it creeps me out a little bit. It's like the one of the nicest things is with music, with movies, is you can't relive like some day in 1998, but you can go back and hear an album that you listened to that day and it will sound exactly the same. And the, th- the fact that it won't in many cases is kind of weird to me. Do you mean, just to be clear, that eventually when Sgt. Pepper's is redone, that the version from three years ago won't be, we won't be able to find no, that one or that. the original. <laughs> no, I don't care about that. It's basically that that the Sgt. Pepper's has already been redone, right? And so yeah. has Revolver. And so is, so when you go to a streaming service, you're not hearing the original mix. And a mix is very important to a record. Like a mix defines everything that you're hearing. You know, for example, in the Beatles stuff, they're, you know, Rubber Soul, there's things that are all the way over to the right that are now in the center, yeah. like dramatic things. And so that it's an overwriting of history. Yeah, no, I just have the only response I have is bitchy, which is just that I have vinyl records. So for me, it's go. always able to go back to it. <laughs> Right. There you go. Anyone who buys the new vinyl gets the new thing, though. So it's like... Right. Exactly. It's, it's just weird. I mean, it's it's a minor thing and I'm all for, you know, trying to improve things with remixes. It's just something about... It. And it's also like, you know, if you're a Taylor Swift fan, you might start listening to only Taylor's versions. So this is this weird thing of the permanence of these cultural products is being disrupted many times for very good reasons, for... Taylor's very legitimate business reasons and artistic reasons and for modernizing the Beatles albums so they don't sound like, you know, on the flip side of what I'm saying, when you go to, if you listen to, I don't know, a Kinks album that hasn't even been remastered since like the year 2000 and compared to a Beatles album that was remixed two years ago, it's not even a fair fight. Like the Kinks album will sound a hundred years old and the Beatles album sounds like right now, which is why they're doing this. And I, so that, that part is positive. I find that completely fascinating. I feel like you could do a whole episode on that, just especially with the Taylor's versions, just like in 30 years from now, what's the go-to version of 1989 for a lot of kids? It's incredible. And the Beatles vinyl I do have, if you want to be like a super nerd, you can collect the originals and the new mixes, like the wide album, I have both because they do sound very different to me. And then you get into the whole mono stereo thing, because as we know, up until a certain point, the Beatles actually weren't focusing on the stereo, which is why those mixes are so strange with the vocals of the whole band is on the left side and one lonely echoey vocal is on the right and all. That's why I'm not going to get too upset about it also is because some of those stereo mixes just suck. And then Paul might be like, look, back in the 60s, we had a very limited technology and this is the way that the song should have sounded, the the, way that that, I want them to sound. But that's George Lucas being like, you know, I intended New Hope to have like 4,000 aliens poking their heads out of every corner and and I just didn't have the budget. So it's exactly the same thing as that as well. Sure. Yeah, which sure, is sure. also true. You know, it's like I, I wanted it to suck more, you know, it's like, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's just, I just hope that the actual history isn't too hard to find. And then just the idea of what is Revolver? Is Revolver this new version? And when you're hearing that, or are you hearing a, a sort of falsified version of history when that's your first exposure to it? I, I don't know. It's interesting. He's, yeah, I tough. know that we're lucky that it's done by someone like Giles, who has in, both by familial heritage and temperament is incredibly respectful of history and the band themselves is involved. So it's, it also, there could be a future when, given the access to this technology, there could be versions of songs that sound nothing like the, you know, attempts to modernize. What's sort of like, imagine that Elvis, a little more conversation remix, but like times a million where they're constantly trying to monetize these things and modernize them. I, I could definitely see that happening. 
I think that's the future. And I think at some point, the heirs of the Beatles or the Beatles themselves are going to sell the whole damn thing for $10 billion. And the people who buy it are going to do stuff like that. Yeah, well, it's like the Beatles love times a million and, you know, but whatever that of all the things to worry about in the world, I'm not going to worry too much about that. But it, it is an interesting thing that, to ponder across the board. But so back to this song now and then, I think it's OK. I'm, I'm very moved by its existence. I don't think it's as good as Free as a Bird in Real Love. And I think there's even the John vocal. I feel like it might be too clear and it doesn't have the kind of effects on it that John would have put on it. It's so there's something about like it has trouble hitting me as a John vocal yeah. at some level. We don't know what John would have done if he went into the studio when he made Double Fantasy and went back to the song and finished it. I'm sure it would sound very different than it sounds here. At the same time, it's my favorite of the three songs, which I wow. know is a minority opinion. There's something to me that's very poignant about it. And Free as a Bird in Real Love, they leave me a bit cold. But something about this song, there's, there's a real emotion attached to it. And... When Paul and John, when they lock voices across all of these decades, it just really hits me. Uh, I think it's beautiful. Are you sure it's not recency bias? I'm just asking. It's very possible. <laughs> I never really heard this. I've never heard bits of it. There's When I first heard this, I was prepared to hate it. And when it came on, I'm like, well, this kind of works. I like the melody. I like the song. I think it's very poignant, and I really like it. It hits me for different reasons. I love that Andy's like, oh, I just love that their voices are together. For me, it's... The fact that it's a John song and the original demo, the original recording of the cassette is at like such a slower tempo. There's an argument to be made that the Beatles song that we now hear is completely different than what John intended, as Andy just said. Like the, I think they increased it by like 88 beats per minute versus 80. And if you hear the original, it's really depressing and it's slow. And of course, naturally, I gravitated towards that. And I think that's what I love about it the most, that it's a John you can hear his voice when they isolate it. You almost cry listening to it, or in my cases, you do cry. And I just feel like that's why I like it more than just Paul and their relationship. To me, it's very much about Yoko. It's during that era. He's in his New York apartment sitting there with a cassette tape. I think that's like the best part about it. I think it's definitely growing on me. I seem to like it more. I think I'm not sure about the decision to go whole hog with the strings, which I know Paul was dubious about. I, I I also am dubious about it. I'm not sure it was the right, but I, I understand why they did it. It's a lot to go from John playing piano in his apartment in this wispy demo to like strings and everything. It's a lot. You know, it's it's right. just it's a decision, and I'm I'm just trying to. It's a lot. You know what? It's it's not really fair. It's not really fair to. You know it's the last song. It's the one song since 1994. It has a lot of weight on it. It's not like there's 10 other songs to compare it to. And it'll be like, I like track three better. There's just the one. And they didn't have any other options besides Grow Old With Me, which John already, which didn't really count because John had already made a version of it. Because that was another one they were considering apparently, but that would have been a weird choice. So it's sort of like, this is all they had. So it, it feels almost unfair to judge it too harshly. So you have to also remember that it is pretty doctored, like the vocals they took from Because, Eleanor Rigby, Here, There, and Everywhere. The easiest to hear for me are the vocals in Because at the very end. You can actually hear them side by side. And they it's bringing the argument up of like, is this really a completely new Beatles song we can judge on its own? Yes. Yeah, so to be clear, they took, in order to get quote unquote real Beatles backing vocals, they took Oz and whatnot, they being Giles, took little bits of, you know, because the Beatles are singing a certain chord as an ah, 
and you can take that and if you can find the same chord and i don't know actually don't know if he pitch shifted or not but you could easily pitch shift it as well and just have that that's the new quote-unquote beatles backing vocals so that's it's an interesting move i i, I wonder if it's quite possible that that had jeff lynn and paul and george and Ringo had the ability to do that, something like that in the 90s, maybe they would have. It's just that was that would have been extremely annoying and difficult to do in the 90s. Now it takes, he probably was able to do it in about five seconds. So yeah, it's, it's, there's, this, there's this whole orchestra recording. There's these backing vocals taken from other sources. There's new Paul harmonies. There's new Ringo drums and new Paul bass. Apparently they recorded bass and drums also in 94, but then redid them from scratch. It's very poignant. I'm glad it exists. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to just for make a very broad point, the Beatles story ended with Abbey Road, and these three songs are quasi-novelties done decades later. They're, they're different things, and if you judge them by a, that standard, I think they sound a lot better than if you compare them to legit Beatles songs. And look, if you don't know any of these things that we've discussed so far, any of the actual details or what the recordings are or the difference in years... If you just played this song for someone, it's a really beautiful melody. And I think it's really nice that it exists in its purest form. It's just a really sweet thing to have in 2023. So, and then the last thing before we move on to the Stones is the video, which mm. Peter Jackson did. And I think the video is, is sweet and kind of funny and very touching at the end. Uh, it uses a lot of sort of CGI, ghostly Actually, the whole band, not just the guys who are dead, but, you know, the, the old images of them are kind of like popping up like, uh, like it's the, the Haunted Mansion at Disney World, like popping up, dancing in front of modern footage of them recording the orchestra. I'm also really glad that they unearthed footage, like we said, of them actually recording now and then. Because, and it makes you wonder just how much stuff is unused for the anthology. We knew there was, but there's quote unquote hours of them recording now and then in the 90s. So what else is there? There must be so much. So Peter Jackson used a bit of that. I understand that a lot of people did not like the ghostly George and John. And I think that would be the two of you. I want to say that Haunted Mansion is a lot less creepy than this. <laughs> um, you're the only human that I've talked to so far that prefers the video over the song. Um, I mean, I separate the two things, right? There's the video and I love the anthology footage like that on its own is incredible. There's I'm not hating that at all. It's great to see. George in there and all of his denim. I love watching them talk and whatever. The CGI is so unsettling to me and unnecessary. And I realized they wanted to make it playful, just like as they sped up the tempo of the, the song. Like it's supposed to be a nice little light, playful thing. It's just really creepy. I know Andy has a lot to add to that. It, a lot. It's just ghastly. And it's just, it is <laughs> inadvertently funny when they come in and there's John in 65, whatever, just being all doofy and everything the studio it looks cheap uh, it's distracting and it's just like what the fuck are they doing they i would say it's the meant, like this. It, it, but it's meant to be funny i mean peter jackson said it was meant to be funny that, that he deliberately look for and use goofy stuff from john and george so that it wouldn't be maudlin and that it wouldn't yeah, be right. it, it yeah. still is yeah. but yeah. the orchestra the, the weirdest part to me that frame of the orchestra and john is conducting and making goofy faces I almost find it like, I don't want to say offensive, but just like really bizarre and unsettling. And I didn't like it at all. I was like, please get rid of this. Please fast forward. It's just so disturbing to me. 
It's so interesting that it's, I totally get that. And for whatever reason, I just had a different reaction. I will say I read, it might have helped. I read this very long statement that Peter Jackson put out to obviously obviate the need for any interviews. He put out like a four-page statement explaining the making of the video before I watched the video. Okay. So that put me yeah. in the, he explained his concerns, which were that he, first of all, he didn't think there was any footage of them recording now and then, which would have made it very difficult. So he's very happy. Then they went into the deepest part of the vaults and found it. So he's very happy. Then he didn't want it to be maudlin, so if he was going to include them, he wanted to include goofy footage to make it lighthearted. So that's what they were looking for, especially in the middle. And so he explained all this stuff. So then when I saw it, it set it up for me. And then I will say, the part at the end that really got me emotionally is when they, the Beatles do a bow at the end in black and footage and then f- disappear. I was like, I was really affected by that. And I've now, talked to other people who were affected by that. I thought that was cool. There's cool parts to it. I didn't read that Peter Jackson thing. I had no idea about what this video was going to be. <laughs> I just put it on. And I, I think most yeah. people are just going to watch it without having read that. Right. So I was just like, what the fuck are they doing? And <laughs> I think that's going to be a very common reaction. It's just triggered me the whole time. Like, what the hell? As, as I said, they could have showed anthology footage and had that beautiful, poignant ending that you just described. And that would have been great. They could have shown other footage without having the CGI and them in the studio, like the Sergeant Pepper outfits. Like, it's just cartoonish at this point. I don't want to see that with 90s George next to it. It's weird. You know what it reminded me of? Because it was all Abbey Road and the ghosts, the sort of quote unquote ghosts of them were, and it wasn't just the ghosts, again, of the dead guys. It was, I appreciate that there also was Paul and the sort of quote unquote ghosts of the earlier selves of Paul and Ringo showed up. And what I appreciate about that is the one time and so this was all at Abbey Road because Paul still loves recording there. And when I did a, a Paul McCartney cover story and we met at Abbey Road in the studio too, where they where the Beatles recorded, I don't think I would have been as overwhelmed with just meeting Paul because I'm kind of used to that kind of thing. But the fact that it was in that studio was really freaking me out. And he was so cash about it. He'd be like, over there is where we recorded Lady Madonna. I was like, that's fucking insane. How can you stand this? Basically, I was like, why would you want to be in this room? There's so many ghosts in here was literally what I was thinking. So for me to see that manifested, I was like, yeah, I was like, that's how I saw it. So for him to be sort of cheerily plunging along as these ghosts are like dancing behind him, I was like, yeah, that's actually, I think that's what Paul's head looks like, honestly. That's just where he dwells. And so I guess on that level, you two probably think I'm giving this way too much credit, but that's how I felt that that's sort of how it is for both Paul and Ringo, especially Ringo. I feel like he wakes up and those like they're all like lurking there and be like, what are we going to do today? It, it's hard to escape the idea of the, that the past is always sure. present for these guys. You just hated the execution. That's a basically. fine concept. It was just yeah. a sloppy, lame execution that was cheesy and unsettling. Differing opinions uh, on the video, to be sure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So to move on to a band that, uh, you know, has lost Charlie Watts, uh, but is otherwise an actual functioning 2023 band, the Rolling Stones. And this is a whole, in many ways, a whole different thing. When I said it's in its own way as eerie, it's because we've never had this before, which is these guys are in their 80s. And it's not just that they made a Stones album. But they made a very energetic and a te- sort of modern Stones album. It's insane. This is a band that formed in 1962 in like the early seasons of Mad Men when JFK was president. When Pete Best was in the Beatles, they formed forever ago. They're in their 80s. The fact Jagger sounds so good still and they can still do this is just a miracle of miracles I never thought I would hear. I didn't think it was possible. But it's also, you know, it's, it's, there's plenty of bands. I mean, look at Arctic Monkeys who are in their 30s and they're, they're like, we're so tired of the rock stuff. We want to make this space age lounge music now. And it's like, how can we possibly do what we were doing? It's, we're not teenagers in, anymore. We've grown up now. And meanwhile, literally, and so yeah. then add a half century of age onto this and the Stones are like the opposite. They still are refusing to mellow into something quote-unquote age-appropriate. It's also funny, like, people are complaining that Drake won't mature, that that Drake at age 36 is still making, still talking about Drake stuff, still complaining about his relationships with women, and here's Mick at age 80 still with the same relationship complaints. It's quite possible we'll still be having uh, Drake albums in in, uh, the year, like, 2070. This is like Drake (laughs) in 2070 coming out with an album being like, stop complaining about our Barbados vacation songs. And so it's awe-inspiring and like on some level sort of baffling and just like mind-boggling what's miraculous to me is they gave up in my mind a long time ago back you know in the 90s they'd always do an album before they toured then they just stopped doing that after uh you know they did bigger bang in 05 and they did blue and lonesome in 16 which is all covers but they just kept touring and doing the old songs there was no motivation to do a new album because there was no demand for one so I was positive that they were done. They'd always talk about it, but it never seemed to happen. I figured, and their last album was really strong record straight through without a lot of filler. They got to go back to like Undercover or Tattoo You. I mean, we're going back a long time. Since so many critics have called so many albums their best one yeah. since Tattoo You, obviously a, <laughs> a famous music critic cliche. So there's some disagreement about it, but yeah. I like Undercover. I like Steel Wheels and Dirty Work, but there's a lot of filler on those records and Voodoo Steel Lounge. Steel Wheels. And, Steel Wheels has some great songs on it. I'm a Steel Wheels fan. I realize there's low points to it, but I love mixed emotions. Not the only 
I love slipping away. I love rocking a hard place. That Voodoo Lounge and Bridges of Babylon are pretty shitty records with two or three good songs. And Bigger Bang is like four good songs. They felt so half-assed for so long. And this does not feel half-assed. I am less surprised that they made a new album than I am the fact that it's actually good. Sorry to say my expectations were low, but there's no skips on this one. I think the whole record throughout is just a really nice, even keel. I think it's really solid. I think maybe what people are missing here and is making Keith told Rolling Stone's Corey Grow, Keith has always been pushing to make this record. They made the actually quite excellent blues album during the sessions, the lead up sessions to this that have been lasting for years. They've been trying to record this album. So they made the, the album Blue and Lonesome that came out in 2016, uh, which is all blues covers. And I think it is a really good album in its own right, but it doesn't have original songs. But they've had these kind of lackadaisical sessions for many years trying to make an album and it was Keith who really felt they should. And according to Keith, Mick never really felt that way, never felt that urgency. I think Charlie dying, I think turning 80, I think that really focused their mind. If we don't do it now, it's not going to happen. And these random ass sessions that were with Don Waz, we do a few songs, then take off six months, which is never going to lead to a record. They needed a producer and a deadline. First, Mick has the heart thing. Then Charlie Watts dies. And Mick turns 80. And I think, right, all these things come together. It's like, I don't think, while many of his fans may have been under the impression that Mick Jagger might live forever, Mick explicitly has said that he's well aware of his mortality. He's just not aware of it in a sort of morbid or preoccupied way. But he's quite aware it's not going to last forever. But I think something kicked in emotionally, like you said, where it's like, I want to do this, that combination of things. And I think, yeah, losing Charlie obviously a, a big thing, a huge thing, a measurable thing. They're lucky to have Steve Jordan, who is who obviously does everything he can to play a lot like Charlie without losing his own identity. Yeah, he grew up a huge Stones fan. He knew Charlie well. He played with Keith for years. He's the one guy on the planet that could have done this, that had real credibility to it. I think it's also crazy that they chose a producer who's like a Stones super fan. Going to make a weird comparison. The Monkees in 2016, they got Adam Schlesinger to produce the record, who grew up a huge Monkees fan, who incorporated like that sound into Fountains of Wayne in some ways. He was a complete obsessed Monkees fan, and he had a real sense of how to make a Monkees sounding record and how to revitalize the man to work. It's like, it's a great record. And it was the same thing here. Andrew Watt, he grew up on the Stones, he's a diehard Stones fan, and he knew how to do it in a way that's almost better than they did at this point to get that sound back. So. I I respect Andrew Watts, the fact that he's become the leading rock producer of the era. It's a dubious title in 2023 in some ways because of how little rock there is in the mainstream, but he's really become the guy and all these guys love him. Paul McCartney loves him. He obviously works with the Post Malone. Then he did work with Ozzy Osbourne and Elton John and Iggy Pop. And with I, Eddie Vedder, he's and Eddie the, Vedder, the Pearl Jam record. Yeah. yeah, and he's working on the next Pearl Jam record. I get a little bit worried about, I think... A problem is that no one really knows what, quote unquote, because Mick said specifically, I wanted this to sound like a modern album. The problem is no one really knows what a modern rock album sounds like in 2023. I think that's a, it's kind of a weird category because a lot of, I know what sort of an indie album sounds like in 2023 with, with rock band playing, but as far as like a super produced mainstream rock album, 
I think that's in dispute <laughs> what that would be. And so th- there's moments on this album where I, I get a little concerned about the sort of like the drum sound starts to sound artificial. There are two tracks with Charlie and they sound more organic to me. So that, there's moments when it doesn't sound as organic as I'd prefer. It sounds a little bit like a confection, like a, sometimes I don't hear a band playing in a room as much as I'd like. For example, if you go to Blue and Lonesome, you really, just from seven years ago, you'll hear a band playing in the room. This doesn't always sound like that. It does sound like a quote-unquote modern album, which is weird because that often means it's sounding less like a rock album per se, like a, a post Maloney pseudo-rock radio thing sometimes. And Mick oh. thought he was like making that clear to Corey. He was like, I wanted it to sound like the Stones today. But to me, that made it way more confusing because I had the same you know, thought that you did. Like, what does that mean? What does that even sound like? Yeah, I see the sound quibbles and I get that. But the songs themselves, they rise above that. These are really strong songs. There's also an issue. There was something called the loudness war. And for the most part, it's over. It was really happening in the early 2010s this horrible thing where people were just pushing the levels of albums to try to compete with each other and end up making these blaring bad mixes. Uh, some classic cases are the Metallica album, Death Magnetic, the Bruce Springsteen album, Magic. There's a few other ones where the mix is literally clipping. It's distorting a little bit and it ends up sounding headachy. And unfortunately, the main mix to Hackney Diamonds, the Stones album, suffers from this. It's the first time in a long time that it, it, this is much less common now. It's a throwback. So it's this kind of like blaring, overwhelming sound. The good news, and this is very uh, a weird artifact of 2023, is the Atmos mix. So the, the surround mix, is, and that's what you get served on Apple Music by default. Even if you're going down to stereo, by default, you're getting a version of the Atmos mix. It's totally different. It happens to be done by Giles Martin, who's the same guy who produced Now and Then, did the Beatles remixes, and it's totally different. It's much... If you go from, if you're lucky enough to have both Apple Music and Spotify or something, you can go back and forth and the Apple Music is monumentally less loud than the other version and also much more, it breathes more, it sounds much more natural. So basically you can solve this whole problem by listening to it on Apple Music. It's a whole different album. I've never experienced anything like this. And it's so weird that they weren't like, wait, these sound totally different. These are like two different albums. They just were like, whatever, let it go. So very strange one of the weirdest nerdy audio situations I've ever seen, but not to get too caught up in that. But let's talk about the, the songs a little bit. Uh, the, and there are, the songwriting is, is quite robust. I don't love Angry, the single. It's okay. Yeah, I don't think that's the best song. I think Whole Wide World... Bite My Head are much better songs. I was going to say I prefer Whole Wide World, but I have the hot take that I feel like Bite My Head Off is not as great as Angry. Sorry to say. I just find it like really repetitive and not in a good way. It's really thin to me. Bite My Head Off is very funny because it's like it's the Stones doing sort of a punkish song with Paul McCartney. It's almost like a joke. That, that dream of the Beatlestone supergroup, but let's do it on like the most throwaway nothing. What's fun about it is these, let's face it, these incredibly old men doing this this thrashy, loud song together is, is a very funny joke. It's a funny contrast for Paul to have him on this and also on Now and Then because they're very different songs at the same time. 
Yeah. yeah, maybe I'm just trying to, I took it too seriously, probably. It's a fun song, and I bet it's really good live. They you, did you, play it live. It was sick. Yeah, Andy's one of the 200 people on Earth who's seen this live. <laughs> yeah, having gotten into that insanely hard to get into uh, Stone Surprise Club show. Yeah, and it was sick. It was. It sounded great live, and Whole Wide World Live was really great. I think that was the best new song in the show, that and Sweet Sound of Heaven with Lady Gaga. I like bite my head off it. It does have the most dunderheaded guitar riff, like in a very in a and it just reminds me that the Stones, among other things, invented that this really stupid guitar riff. They're one of the first people to to do that, and it has a very stu- you know just like a dun 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 dun. It just has a very yeah. very very simple little thing. But that's them. They're allowed. The song I believe the most is "Dreamy Skies," where Mick dreams about going away to someplace where no one will, can call him and bother him. And I just need some peace from the storm. And I felt like that was one of the most sincere Mick Jagger songs ever written because I have no doubt that is his number one dream to be left alone for five minutes, which probably hasn't happened to him since 1965. Yeah, yeah, I I thought it was great. I think that Get Close is a really, it's a really sweet song. I like the first line, I walk the city at midnight with the past strapped to my back. It matches what we were saying about the state of being Paul and Ringo. I, I enjoy I enjoy any time that Mix appears to be getting actually confessional because it's so rare. Yeah, and it's what it's what Watt pushed him towards when he brought him Whole Wide World first. He was like, "I love it, but try and make the lyrics more about you and more personal." And he did that. So Watt is, is a good producer in that sense that he was unafraid to push Jagger to get more intimate. Yeah, I thought it was amazing on the track, depending on you, when Mick says, I'm too young for dying and too old to lose. I love that he can sing the line, I'm too young for dying at age 80. That's the, one of the most defiant uh, things ever from a rock star. Yeah, he refuses to age. I saw him a few weeks, that was after the heart surgery, and he was dancing around the stadium for two hours and was fine. You know, he's raising a son now that's like eight years old. You know, he just does not age. And how many hours a day is he like working out? That's the real question. Yeah, obviously a combination of genetics and, and lifestyle have really lived in his favor. But Keith is obviously continues to be the more inexplicable thing. But I really like Mess It Up. The two songs with Charlie are Mess It Up and Live By The Sword. And Mess It Up has that sort of post-disco dance thing going on. And it really could pass for... A much older Stone song, like for real. People were saying that about the whole album, which I don't agree with. But this, like a hundred percent, you could, if you didn't know it was from a new album, you couldn't be sure it was from if it was from nineteen seventy nine or nineteen eighty four, nineteen ninety five. You really couldn't tell. You would think Emotional Rescue when he's singing in a higher voice. It's great, and I'm led by the sword to hear Elton John as just a piano player at a session is very cool because he's very good at that. He sort of locks in with them. That, to me, sounds more like an older Stone song. That's almost certainly the real last Rolling Stone song because it has not only Charlie, but it has Bill Wyman on bass. Yeah. If only they had like some sample of Brian Jones in there, it would really be the, the last uh, Stone song. There's no Brian Jones on it or Ian Stewart. But other than that... Right, where as Elton John is sort of is 
taking on the role of Ian Stewart or of Nicky Hopkins or whatever. Yeah. I also love the story that I think Corey wrote about where Lady Gaga comes into the studio for Sweet Sounds of Heaven and is rolled up into a ball on the floor. And Mick is, get up, let's do this properly. I just love that. Yeah, that's an incredible song. I, I think, you know, definitely one of the highlights in the album, if not the single highlight, actually, because it's so robust. It's this gospel thing written by Mick on piano. I know we want to believe that Mick and Keith can still write together. I guess there are cases where they did on this album, but Mick fully wrote this on piano at home. And the serendipity of getting Gaga there, it ends up really ascending in this really ambitious way that's really where you're like, oh, like they didn't have to go this hard kind of thing. Oh, wait, is this actually a classic Stone song? But that also has Lady Gaga on it in 2023. It's staggering and live. It was even better. They posted a video on YouTube of the live version. That's just the raw version of it live. It wasn't overdubbed or anything. And they crushed it. Everyone keeps overlooking the fact that Gaga was in the studio next to them, which means that she was recording probably an album. So it's interesting. And then she also just went and played with you 2 at the Sphere. So she's really <laughs> doing her tour of the uh, old men of classic rock lately. So it'd be interesting to see if it'd be funny if her album has absolutely nothing to do with this. But she definitely does seem to be in her sort of uh, in her legend eras. I love that, that she she sang Shallow with you 2 That's her classic yes. old song now. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. The Sweet Sounds of Heaven is staggering. And when you think about Charlie Watts, too, and that song together and just like the like what that could mean, the poignance of it, it's almost as powerful as like, I don't know, like say hello to heaven or something. Right. That he's singing about the afterlife and and he's singing about Charlie Watts and the afterlife kind of thing. Yeah. It's it's like the Andrew Wood part two. And then Sweet Sounds of Heaven is also it's seven minutes long. And then a very another very important part is you hear this keyboard solo that's really gorgeous. And it's freaking Stevie Wonder. You do have to love that they pulled in a lot of their clout for this album. And uh, and I think Andrew also pushed them on that. Why not get Elton John? Why not get Stevie Wonder? And I think that's yeah. really cool. And it's cool to bring on these superstars and they don't sing with them. They don't become duets. They contribute to the song in a really important way, which is cool. Yeah, they're not overshadowing the song at all. It was a sort of cool fan naivete, although I was a little... <laughs> Andrew Watt describes anyone who like knows their history is always taken aback by moments like this, but Andrew Watt casually asked Mick and Keith how they met. From a journalist, it just shows a lack of homework, but from a producer, it's not necessarily your job to know that stuff. So it feels like while they might be... If a journalist asked them, they'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Have you never read yeah, anything? Like, but from when a producer asks, somehow they're charmed and they just answer it. I, I, it's not the only time that you've seen something like this where someone asks what to a fan or a knowledgeable journalist is like, a maddeningly stupid question. No offense yeah. to Andrew Watt, but it's pretty famous how they... <laughs> yeah, and he's yeah, wearing, there's a plaque there. Yeah. And he's wearing stone shirts every day to the studio and has like a Stevie Wonder tattoo. Like, it doesn't make any sense that he would ask that question. But anyway, so he apparently asked this question, which is, I'm sorry, it's still funny to me. And they answered. And, and and then he asked, where did you get your name? Which is also a very funny... It's sort of like, and what kind of music do you play? These very basic questions, but I guess somehow they were charmed by this. And, uh, you know, when he learned about the Muddy Water song, Rolling Stone, he then asked, but then it's an example where the naivete plays off, which is like, have you ever played it? Have you ever recorded it? And they're like, no. And then he said, would you? And they're like, absolutely. And so he does get this very special acoustic version of this Muddy Water song that ends the album. Well, I wish I was a captain. And if it does happen to be their last album, it, it, you know, you couldn't have ended better. And, and it is, it's the same thing on Blue and Lonesome. You can talk about 
and I did talk about the issues of appropriation and whether this music belongs to them. And I, I, you know, you can go and see what they said about it in my cover story. It's not something I ignored, but there's no doubt that Mick at age 80 sings this stuff with a whole lot more authority than he did at age 22. And it's a very powerful and authoritative and sort of more age appropriate thing that ends the album, them doing this Muddy Waters song. And it's just, I think it's just Mick and Keith, right? Yeah, so there, yeah, which a are beauty. the two survivors, I mean, two people are still in the band from day one, so it's... And I'm sure throughout, you know, we didn't mention Ron Wood. I mean, if you see them live, Ron's a, a great guitar player. What it really took for me to really appreciate Ron was seeing the reunited faces at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where he was, I think, the only guitar player on stage. And so yeah, you could he he- tore it up, and so, yeah. so you could hear, you could really just hear what he does by itself... And you're like, oh, I see. Like, he's the one, he's filling in every gap and and helping. And as Keats arthritis is a bigger and bigger problem, and they got rid of Blondie Chaplin on stage. So Ron is more important than he's ever been to the sound of the band. Right. It's an extraordinary sort of time travel-y thing to have this stuff in 2023. And I know for some, it's like, will these people ever go away? I understand people feeling that way. And the, and the fact is, they, they're going to. The days when there's still tours by The Who and The Stones and stuff are rapidly coming to an end. It's about it. Right now, you could, in the past couple of years, you could see The Who, you could see The Stones, you can see Bob Dylan, you can see Bruce Springsteen is a little younger, and we're in the last days of this. So it's miraculous to get this one last robust album and one more Beatles song here in 2023. Yeah. Their ability to sort of monopolize media attention is also very funny still. The Beatles and the Stones still have so much name recognition and clout among every age group. It's absolutely wild. They'll never, in the history of music branding, there's just been nothing like it. Those brands are so powerful. That their fans aren't all people who were fans back in the 60s. It's multi-generational. As Angie mentioned, there's tons of Beatles stands on TikTok. There's tons of kids who, as there always have been, there's always been, and many of them are, are, are young women uh, who are obsessed with the Beatles and who are very, very emotional about this song. A bit less with the Stones, but I've seen a bit on it. But there, it's, it's definitely, there's definitely a cross-generational aspect to it. The timing does crack me up. It's also weird how when the Stones were out actually doing things for 50 years after the Beatles... They still didn't overtake the Beatles, which is very funny. No, the, the younger audience we're talking about, I also love that the Beatles, they never like rush to cater to younger generations. It just happens like they don't force that at all. They finally started selling their downloads in like 2010. And it wasn't until 2015 you could hear them on Spotify. Like they've never really been trying hard to like be part of the youngs. It just kind of happens. There will still be teenage Beatles stands in 20 years. There just won't be any more Beatles, new Beatles songs. And the Stones, it's, it's different. I think what people want, in theory, is like something funereal and me contemplating my last days kind of thing. And their utter refusal to do that is, is very funny to me. And just, again, you don't know how to wrap your head around something this like sort of energetic from people who are not just old, but like really old and the, at the upper end of the human lifespan, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's in the history of recorded music. It's one of the most blatant sort of raging against the dying of the light kind of things. It's just remarkable. And we, we've joked about the fact that Steve Jordan, the drummer is now the, the youthful young whippersnapper in the band. And he's in his sixties. So there's something very funny about that. He looks so young though. It's so weird that he's that old. Yeah. You read old articles in the 80s and they'd be like, and clearly Mick is putting in slow songs to rest his aged body between songs. It does raise questions. I mean, like if there's just one of them and Ron Wood, 
how far would they push this thing? It's best it, not to contemplate. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a Keith Free Stones tour, but it might happen. Do you not think in 20, 30 years there'd be some sort of ABBA-like Beatles experience? Sure, there, there probably will... Yes, but not with a living Paul McCartney and, and living Ringo. No, there. no, yeah. I don't mean yeah. that. Some yeah. sort of ABBA-like show or hologram. <laughs> Paul, a hundred and ten-year-old uh, Paul McCartney with uh, CGI. No, I mean yes. I, I I think there probably will be some kind of live experience. We've talked about what AI can do, and I think AI can fill in the gaps in concert footage and stuff like that, where they'll be able to make make holograms or make whatever they want to. They did those Elvis concerts where it was live members of his old bands, but Elvis on a screen. And at least there was an aspect of live to that. With mm. the Beatles, if you have anyone playing live on stage, it becomes entirely fake. So it would have to be a non, like, it can't be live. It would have to be like a hologram movie, but not anytime you have anyone else playing, it's just a tribute band. So right. it would be a curious novelty, but nothing too interesting, I can't imagine. You could create something at the sphere, right? That would be cool, but essentially that's just a cool. Again, it's just a, a very cool movie. Yeah. It's not anything more. It, yeah, it could be like, like a, a movie concert. of like they could do like the Eras tour for like the Beatles, I guess, in a movie. They already had Beatles love, so I'm sure. Right. But that's right. performers on stage right. that are doing a whole acrobatic routine. So everything so lame, right? I guess we should close by noting that the actual living, breathing Rolling Stones are still touring. There's no need for holograms there. They'll be on the road next year somehow. So there's still that. But Andy, Angie, thanks so much for joining us. I'll see you next time. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.